This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Disney has been known for romanticizing even the most tragic events, with Pocahontas probably being one of their greatest disservices to a true history. But about six years ago, they struck gold again when Disney released The Greatest Showman. You're all dismissed. Bankrupt. Better luck with your next job. I am not a stranger to the dark. This is not the life I promised you. It's said to be based on the story of P.T. Barnum, the famous creator of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. In the trailer, Barnum is a down-on-his-luck guy that simply wants to make a difference. He believes he can create a show that celebrates how everyone is special. He sees all of us, even those considered as circus freaks, as human beings, and he wants to show the world how unique his talented performers are. He's going to turn them into stars. But as that feel-good This Is Me song plays, you might start to realize that Barnum isn't celebrating anything. He's simply exploiting people. Nobody is like any one of us. That's the point of my show. Birdie? Disney might want to gloss over this fact with sparkly costumes and romance plots, but Barnum was ultimately using people. So do you want to know the real story of the first performer Barnum hired? Well, he didn't actually hire her at all. He purchased the right to rent an elderly black woman, a slave, when he was just 25 years old. Barnum's acquaintance had apparently been trumpeting this woman, Joyce Heth, around Philadelphia, claiming she was the 161-year-old nurse of George Washington. Why Barnum was so interested in her? To give her a better life and show the world how special she was? Absolutely the fuck not. I had long fancied that I could succeed if I could only get hold of a public exhibition, he reflected about his life at the time in his 1855 autobiography, The Life of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. Yeah, he literally viewed this elderly woman, a human being, as merely an exhibition. Even though slavery was outlawed by this time, a loophole still allowed him to lease her, and it was at this point that Barnum started his career in show business. Rewrite the stars, Disney? More like rewrite horrific crimes against humanity out of history. P.T. Barnum was a slave owner, or slave leaser, I guess, a supposed source of embarrassment for him later in life when he became an abolitionist. Yes, he supported equality all right, but only after a legacy of inequality and exploitation made him famous and wealthy. So let's take a deeper look at that legacy today on this episode of The Corporate Casket. To thank uh, President Trump for. Everybody wants to make that connection. Yeah. Is it right or not? I mean, I think it's an interesting connection to make. I mean, they're both New York figures. Barnum was heavily into real estate. It must be said that Barnum's relationship with the truth was quite slippery. Barnum wrote a book called The Art of Money Getting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I'll get to the human freak shows Barnum created in a moment, but first let's go ahead and address what he's known for, the circus. No, Barnum didn't invent the circus itself, but Barnum and Bailey is probably one of the most well-known names in that arena. 
also called The Greatest Show on Earth. Originally, James A. Bailey and James E. Cooper owned Bailey & Co's Great International Circus. They rivaled Barnum before in 1880, and then they agreed to join forces. Shortly after that, Barnum purchased elephants and camels and started adding them to the act. Eventually, they had another rival, Ringling, who purchased the Barnum and Bailey Circus in the early 1900s. The classic yellow and red circus that travels by train and has a whole menagerie of animals is practically just one giant Ringling production under different names, which as you could imagine, isn't necessarily a good thing. Any poor regulation, poor practices, and poor treatment wouldn't be limited to a few big tops. This was pretty widespread. You know the expression, go run away and join the circus? It's kind of accurate because it says, join the circus, not a circus, implying that there's only really one choice. And sure, I'm probably reading into that expression a bit too much and that's okay, but the monopoly thing is kind of true. Even back in the 1930s, there was a lawsuit against the company for this and they were fined a million and $40,000, more than Ringling even paid for Barnum and Bailey itself. Ah, the good old days when fines were actually damaging to a bad business, right? Well, I'm kind of kidding, sort of. But real question here is, why does this matter? Why bother with the business side of things? Personally, I think it's the first crack into the illusion that so many have of P.T. Barnum. It's easy to see him as a genius, a master showman, a promoter, and in some cases, an inspiration. The 19th century is a story of ordinary people spreading their wings. And Barnum helped people come out. He was somebody who was really pushing them to know the world better. Barnum's first big step onto the stage. But the thing is, even when slavery was illegal and considered to be immoral, Barnum built his circus on the back of a slave or former slave or leasing a human. So let's not go around saying, oh, things were different back then, because even in his time, what Barnum did was pretty fucking questionable at best, to just put it mildly. Plus, even if he may have been excellent at promoting and marketing, it's because he was a businessman. And yes, that's right. He actually has a book called The Art of Money Getting or Golden Rules for Making Money that you can find on Project Gutenberg. In it, you'll find tips about what to wear, how you can't accumulate a fortune when you're sick, and how the closer you are to the laws of nature, the closer you are to good health. Avoid debt and perseverance and also read newspapers. And it's no wonder we're not all millionaires. I haven't seen anyone pick up a newspaper in ages. So there you go. According to PC Barnum, it's because we don't read newspapers. The more you know. But in all seriousness, aside from the century-old self-help advice, Barnum's actions did have severe consequences. His greatest show on earth led to so much human exploitation and animal death that it's impossible to ignore. I know he later became an abolitionist and endorsed the ASPCA, but it shouldn't have taken enslaving people and killing animals to get him there. I do wanna give credit where it's due, and I'll say that I am happy that he changed, but it's difficult when so many people view the man he was, unchanged and all, with rose-colored glasses. And seriously, he was so horrible to animals and people that even PETA acknowledged both of those things. And while I have criticized them and other organizations for prioritizing animal rights over human lives, even PETA mentions how racist Barnum was before they talk about his legacy of animal abuse. Now you have to be pretty fucking horrific for PETA to actually do a modicum of research, just saying. But now that we've touched just, just a bit on Barnum's supposed genius, let's go ahead and talk about his actions. And we're going to start with the animals. Please know this section will mention animal abuse extensively. If this is too upsetting for you, feel free to click away. His homes and museums burn five times, 
killing scores of animals. His elephants invariably died at an early age. Some animals, simply put, are not meant for captivity. We've spoken about this in the zoo episode we did a couple months back and the SeaWorld episode about a year ago, and maybe I think we did a SeaWorld episode maybe two years prior to that too. It's just virtually impossible to keep an orca happy, and frankly, I don't think we should try to. The same can be said of elephants, even though the Barnum and Bailey Circus was known for having elephants in their act, among other animals, of course. Now, the thing is, I get some people are going to say that we should judge Barnum by his time. Maybe he didn't understand that keeping elephants was abusive or what even qualified as abuse. And first of all, I don't think you understand what an animal needs and are, you know, keeping them for purely entertainment purposes. And I think it's horrible and immoral regardless of what decade or century you're from. But secondly, Barnum actually did far worse than simply cart elephants across the world. You see, in the 1850s, Barnum hired, quote, native assistants in Sri Lanka to search for elephants. This expedition killed off large numbers according to Barnum himself, but he ended up with 11 of them. Well, 10 because one passed away on the voyage. Viewers adored them as they're huge, impressive creatures that many certainly wouldn't see in their lifetime otherwise. So naturally, crowds flocked to the elephants and as demand grew, so did supply. But it didn't get better from there. In 1865, a fire burned down the popular Barnum's American Museum along with the animals inside. Fake mermaid skeletons and taxidermied animals were lost, but the lecture hall also featured hippos, monkeys, snakes, and a kangaroo. There were even whales somehow living in the basement of this building that were, quote, boiled alive in their tanks. Though Barnum tried to reopen it, it burned to the ground again three years later. So yeah, the powers that be absolutely did not want this building to exist. Now, as for how elephants were treated, the head of the company itself, Kenneth Feld, said that in 2009, the circus still used prods and restraints to handle animals as they had done for years. And if you don't know what that means, it entails striking elephants with metal-tipped prods, which Kenneth said didn't hurt them. If anything, it made the animals more hardy than the ones in the wild who might be killed during fights. Flawless logic, I know, right? How can you, how can you debate that? This battle has been ongoing for a while now, and it was only spurred on when a young three-year-old elephant died in his stall in 1998 after performing for two ringling shows. The USDA has said that handlers made the elephant perform after discovering he was sick, but Ringling just donated $20,000 to elephant organizations and called it a day, a fine for operating more than a punishment. Another four-year-old elephant died one year later, and the circus slowly earned itself the nickname the cruelest show on earth instead of the greatest. Disturbing circumstances in the elephant's death were not revealed to the public, and as animal rights activists brought the circus to trial, the truth finally came spilling out. Yes, their calves had herpes. They'd been whipped and beaten and whistleblowers stepped forward to prove it. And sure, some elephants passed before their time too, but that's apparently not abuse to them. Elephant trainers treat the babies like their children. Yes, that is a sworn statement from the handlers. And even after court, scars, infections, and beatings, the handlers still somehow had the nerve to say that they were treated like children and there was no abuse whatsoever. And as y'all know, not a fan of children. I don't really like them. They gross. Uh, not a fan. But um, that being said, uh, call CPS on someone if you think that, uh, that that's okay to do to children. While I do not like children, I do not want any of my own. I don't tolerate the abuse of children. And if you believe that whipping children, beating them, you know, potentially giving them herpes somehow, 
multiple scars, infections, you know, whatever else the hell they were doing to the these elephants. Anifants? Wow, I cannot speak today. Um, if you think all of those things are perfectly okay and that then these handlers apparently in court say, oh yeah, no, they were treated just like children. That's not how you treat a child. That's really the point I'm getting at. That is literally the farthest thing away from how you should treat a, a child. Uh, so if that's how you treat a child and you're one of the handlers who said this and you have children, um, CPS. Unfortunately, aside from the scars, chains, unsanitary conditions, and disease, these elephants aren't even given a proper retirement. It's not as if they can return to the jungle when they're bred specifically for ringling after all. So the elephants go to a retirement program in Florida. Now, while there are no beatings and performances, I genuinely believe that the people at the sanctuary do care for them, but it's pretty sad to hear some of the language used to discuss them. Well, everything that you see now in a Ringling Brothers performance is a part of their natural behaviors. Elephants do stand on their heads. I've seen it here on many occasions. I've seen them balance on balls that they play with. Um, their training will continue because they're used to being around people and you have to work with them and they have to be used to people for us to be able to continue the valuable research. And just seriously, it's natural for elephants to stand on their heads, balance on balls, and be unable to forage for food? Is that so? I have never seen an animal, an elephant in the wild do that. I don't think I've really seen any feral wild animal do that ever, ever actually. Now, maybe, and just maybe, could this be because they've been conditioned to do so since they were small because they were bred to literally be circus performers? These elephants aren't even truly able to have a real retirement because they were always raised to be performing. So those that aren't standing on their head may exhibit symptoms of depression, aggression, or even PTSD after a life of confinement and isolation working for these circuses, or I guess this circus. Elephants simply aren't made to exist this way. And while it's great that elephants are no longer allowed in the circus, it's pretty gross that this was allowed until 2018. Once it became clear that these animals were in fact suffering, why would they wait until this decision was forced upon them? Why not stop on their own if they supposedly care about animals so much? Oh, shit, that's right. I forgot about profit, money. Because people still wanted to see them and because it's far nicer to believe that Ringling was using the bull hook in a proper humane way instead of beating elephants on the head with it, that's why it was allowed to continue. Also, PETA, if you could get your trunk out of your butt and start actually advocating for animals effectively, people may have actually been inclined to believe you. Because once again, one of the greatest arguments Ringling was able to make in their own defense is that PETA, of all organizations, has no right to criticize them for animal abuse. And they're kind of right. So when it turns out that PETA actually had a point about these elephants being abused, no one even believed them. And it was actually used as part of the other side's defense to justify what they were doing, or if not to justify, to at least dispel uh, people listening to PETA. And it kind of worked. So shooting yourself in the fucking foot again, PETA. But moving right along, Ringling did for a brief moment in time even stop their shows. Their last greatest show on earth was in 2017. But just six years later, they returned without the animals. Honestly, I think this is how it should have been from the start. No elephants, no beating innocent animals, and no whales dying in museum basements. Oh, wait. But this was how it all started with the supposed freak shows.
Before Barnum Circus grew into a feat of performance art with a trapeze, comedians, and all these other incredible acts, the circus was nothing more than, well, people gawking at so-called freaks. We already spoke about Joyce, but she was far from the only one that Barnum exploited in what Disney would probably refer to as a celebration of differences. Some of the people he took interest in were seen more as employees, like Jenny Lind, an opera singer nicknamed the Swedish Nightingale. Other employees were billed as living curiosities. Smithsonian explains, quote, one of the most popular displays featured a man billed as a creative found in the wilds of Africa, supposed to be a mixture of the wild native African and the orange orangutan, a kind of man monkey. The offensive poster concluded, for want of a positive name, the creature was called, what is it? And isn't that just, I don't know, such a celebration of differences. It was in fact a who, an African-American man by the name of William Henry Johnson. He also put, quote, Aztec children on display when they were actually from El Salvador, as well as conjoined twins. Now, while we may think that these curiosities were things people didn't understand at the time, such as dwarfism, some of it was nothing more than sheer racism. Seriously, the white woman with the singing voice is called a nightingale, but the black male cook was called a man monkey. I think that's horrific and it's racism at its finest. You can't even use the excuse that Barnum didn't know better because he had been a cook for a different showman before a showman that worked in Barnum's hometown. I guess other showmen may have known better, but Barnum was too busy exploiting them. I'm sorry, celebrating their differences. Celebrating their differences, that's what it is. Benjamin Reese, a professor and chair of English at Emory University has written extensively about Barnum's true legacy in his work, The Showman and the Slave. According to him, the reason we seem to skirt around Barnum's racism is the same reason Disney chose to portray Barnum's life as a feel-good story. Barnum's life has become a cultural touchstone. In many unfortunate ways, he sort of represents that old world part of American history, a simpler time when running off to join a circus wasn't such a fantasy, romanticizing that history is far easier than recognizing the horrors within it. Reese adds that within Barnum's own narrative, he treats his literal ownership of Joyce as a blip on his road to greatness, a lapse in judgment as today's corporate might put it. In actuality though, she was a woman that jumpstarted his career. Her involvement really can't be understated, no matter how much Barnum would like to forget it. Reese stated, quote, he had these new ways of making racism seem fun and for people to engage in activities that degraded a racially subjected person in ways that were intimate and funny and surprising and novel. Was Barnum an excellent showman? Did he make phenomenal jokes and tricks and circus acts? Yes, but we can't remember that at the expense of those he harmed either. Aside from the proclaimed exotic freaks that Barnum displayed, some of whom were simply indigenous people, Barnum also exploited, quote, born freaks and self-made freaks. The former category includes people with medical conditions such as dwarfism, and the latter included heavily tattooed individuals and those that perform novelty acts. Think like the strongman, fire eaters, and things of that nature. Barnum was so well known for these shows that some of the people in his circus were allegedly there since childhood or even infancy. Annie Jones, one of the most famous bearded ladies, worked for Barnum since she was a year old, and Myrtle Corbin, who had a twin that never formed growing from her body, joined the circus at only 13 years old as the four-legged woman. The thing is, 
I wouldn't say that having a man with giganticism or dwarfism play cards and perform is inherently as awful as, in some cases, people that were able to profit from these jobs and find success. Myrtle herself supposedly earned $450 a week, which in today's dollars would be about $11,000 a week. Their relationship with Barnum seemed more mutually beneficial and, well, consensual. I do still believe Barnum sought to exploit them first, not understand any of these medical conditions, considering the way he presented these people to the world. However, when Barnum recruited indigenous Australians and called them Australian cannibal boomerang throwers, despite them not being cannibals, and then made them sing, dance, and throw boomerangs alongside an elephant for crowd's amusement, yeah, that's downright humanizing. There's no way of talking out of that one. If he truly wanted to celebrate differences, then there could have been a way to bring this to the masses. Perhaps asking people from all over the world to come and share their stories, or even perform a routine based on a true story about their lives. Maybe he could have consulted and learned from others and asked how to make an act for his circus that was inspired by some of their traditions or served traditional food. No, 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 why do that? Instead, indigenous people were being propped up on display and stripped of their culture for these freak shows and being reliant on showmen for food and shelter. They were virtual prisoners and they were very far from their homes. Now, at this point, you might think it can't get much worse, but as longtime viewers of the channel will know, it always can because even in death, these people were trapped and exploited. Barnum and one of his recruiters, Cunningham, stole Tambo, an Aboriginal man from his home. Tambo allegedly passed away one year after he was taken, but when he died, Barnum and Cunningham decided to place his body on display. Before any traditional rituals could be performed, Tambo was embalmed and placed in a dime museum well into the 20th century. Quote, after laying forgotten in the basement of a funeral home until 1993, his dead body was finally rediscovered and repatriated to Palm Island, where his relatives were finally able to perform their customary funerary rituals 110 years after Tambo breathed his last breath. While the outcries of the public phased out elephants and circus acts, it wasn't the outcry of this disturbing treatment that seemed to end the freak shows either. Instead, that's been attributed to the rise of cinema and the increase of international tourism. After hearing all this, I wish Barnum had been criticized more in life as opposed to being treated like a revered millionaire and genius. Then again, I'd love for him to be criticized more in death too. Aside from the tragedy of Tambo, there's also the matter of Joyce Heth. Yes, we already said that Barnum literally rented this woman and ran around saying she was George Washington's nurse but it's how Barnum treated her in death that speaks volumes about his character. No, he did not perform a burial, a funeral, and he didn't embalm her for display either. Instead, Barnum sold tickets to her live autopsy inside a saloon. And I wish I was making this up. I really, really do. But unfortunately, this is what happened. You know how in the original version of The Little Mermaid, she basically dies and turns into sea foam? Disney worked real hard to Disneyify that story and make it happy, kid-friendly, and with a feel-good ending. But the way that they turned Barnum's story into a Disney movie is just fucking grotesque. The reality is, he charged people to watch an autopsy. I cannot stress how abominable that is. Yet 1,500 people paid 50 cents each to see Joyce cut up, which supposedly revealed that she was actually around 80, not over 160 as Barnum had claimed. Oh, but never fear, because that's totally fine. This act can apparently be dismissed, because as Barnum's fans will say, he's changed. 
Wilson says that Barnum should be judged by the standards of his time and how he changed. He would go on to become an abolitionist, eventually running for the Connecticut state legislature in part so he could vote for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Owning slaves is wrong, and slavery itself should be abolished. Bold words coming from Barnum, who charged people to see his slaves, I'm sorry, his rented person's autopsy. But these words came from him all the same. Now, here's the thing. I am genuinely all for second chances. That is, if someone is willing to admit they did wrong in the first place. But Barnum didn't do that. He didn't look back on Heth's situation and say, wow, I was a total jackass. I want to stop this from happening in honor of Joyce. And maybe just, just maybe, I would at least be able to end this episode on a somewhat positive note. Positive would be a stretch, but at least a less disturbing note. But that's not what happened. According to JSTOR Daily, quote, Barnum mostly glosses over the tour with Heth, ending with a quick mention of the autopsy and shrugging it off by saying that this dark subject will probably always continue to be shrouded in mystery. Barnum, you can't go around claiming to be a staunch abolitionist, but refuse to condemn yourself for owning an actual human being. Also, what mystery is exactly there? He paraded around an 80-year-old black woman, working her 10 to 12 hours a day to help make his fortune, then made another small fortune on her autopsy. Where is the mystery in that? There's nothing mysterious. That is pretty black and fucking white. Congrats, I guess we solved the fucking mystery today. The mystery of your missing integrity. And please, no, do not give him the benefit of the doubt that he started campaigning after this and owned up to his actions later. I checked. He doesn't deserve that kind of leeway. In 1865, he accepted a nomination to the Connecticut legislature, and he kept releasing updates of his memoirs long after that. The one we just quoted was one from four years after his acceptance. So slavery is wrong when everyone else does it, but if Barnum himself did it and made millions, then it's just a spicy mystery. However, this is the history that Barnum wanted to present on paper. Funny enough, he did admit to owning slaves during a campaign speech in 1865 and said that he whipped them and, quote, ought to have been whipped a thousand times for doing so. The thing is, even if Barnum seemed to show remorse, it's incredibly hard to believe that any of it's genuine. For one, he continued degrading others in the years that followed during his other circus acts. For two, what he said in person was very different than what he said on paper. For three, if Barnum truly and deeply wanted to make amends, why not try and return Tambo's body centuries earlier? Centuries? Decades earlier. And lastly, the most evidence that runs contrary to his abolitionist perspective is how Barnum downright stops talking about Joyce Heth altogether. Originally, he bragged about his work, about their act together. But as time wore on, she became less important. She just became a stepping stone, or as we said earlier, a blip on his road to greatness. That's why I don't buy into the narrative that Barnum was truly changed by the end. He saw an 80-year-old woman as an unsavory chapter in his life. Her life, by the way, the one he exploited and used for his own personal greatness, just became a little oopsie on his path to fame and fortune. There's no equality in that. There's no respect for human life in that. Barnum was the greatest showman, yes. But great doesn't always mean good. And with all of that being said, that's where we're ending today's episode. Today's kind of honestly disturbing episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new here today. Make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. Let me know what you think about the supposed greatest showman that ever lived. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Have a great weekend. Bye. Bye.